Well, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and you have the post-holiday sugar low, and you woke up this morning to see that it's cold and rainy and dark outside, and now you've come to church, faithful as you might be, and I'm about to read to you a long list of names that are hard to pronounce, and most of which you've never heard of before, and I would say that apart from some great help from our musicians, we'd have all the cards stacked against us today because of those things. Today is actually the the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which means this year it's the first Sunday of Advent, that season in which we celebrate and anticipate the coming of Jesus. If you received in the mail this week the church newsletter and got to read some of that, that might have prepared you to think in this direction a bit. And the holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas especially, always mean family reunions to some extent, don't they? Extended family, if not just your own family, at least. And family reunion always means a little bit of tension and a little bit of conflict, you know, a little bit of the awkwardness that comes with all of that. And so it's only appropriate that we mark the holiday season by considering this family reunion that Matthew presents at the beginning of his gospel account. This is, I think, one of the most unsuspectingly, actually deep and significant theological passages in Scripture, and a fascinating one at that. So young Christians, you young disciples, as you listen and and read along with me on page 7 in the bulletin, I want to ask you to do something. As we read this, lots of names are about to come at you. Maybe take a pen or pencil and circle the names that you know. Circle the names that you know. Adults might do the same thing. I'd be curious. But you young disciples, circle the names that you know. Some of them you will know. Most of them, I bet, you will not know. But their obscurity is no reflection on the clarity of the gospel that they present. So as we prepare to read, will you please join me and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but even these words of our God shall never fade away. Father, we pray that you would grant to us understanding. Join together with us this morning by your Spirit, we pray and we ask, admitting that uh, in the dullness of our hearts, in the feebleness of our minds, these would just be a list of unfamiliar names. But we know, Lord, by your Spirit, that you can cause them to be much more than that to us in our souls, and we pray that you would do that. For Jesus' sake and for his glory, in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We have a large white box in our storage closet at home. It's sealed with tape and closed, presumably, to the air and the light. And for almost two decades now, it has followed Mary and I wherever we've moved from Nashville, Tennessee, to St. Louis, Missouri, to Macon, Georgia, to Dallas, Texas, through four different cities and I don't know how many, six or seven different moves. This box is just always part of the stuff, and it sits on a shelf in our storage closet. Any guesses what it is? A wedding dress. It's a wedding dress packed tightly in a box in the closet and it travels with us wherever we land because preservation is an important thing for those things that are important to us. Preservation is a really big business, you know. It's a a big cause for those who are cause-minded. Preservation is a matter not just for wedding dresses but for wetlands. Preservation is a big business and a big cause for historical buildings and for cultural traditions. Preservation in our effort to pursue it even extends down to the more trivial things like youthful looks and salted meat. Preservation is a big business. It's a big cause. It's something that really matters to us. It's important because the time and the circumstances that surround the things that matter most to us will inevitably cause them to erode and to fade away if we don't take some action to prevent it, right? Just last week, Thomas Kunkel, our friend and missionary in Mexico, was here with us to preach. And if you were here, you heard him preach from Genesis 3. A fascinating account of the man and the woman in the garden And they're turning away from God's promises to pursue their own ways. And from that moment in history, everything good began to erode. Everything good began to fade away into 
nothingness, even despite man's greatest efforts to preserve it. And the gospel truth at that moment is only God himself can overcome the decay. Only God himself can actually preserve what matters and what will last. Matthew's gospel, as John explained moments ago, is placed at the beginning of the New Testament very strategically, not because of its alphabetical order with the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You just have to think for a moment to figure out. It's not alphabetical order that put Matthew at the beginning. It's rather the theological punch that Matthew brings with what he gives to us. The book of Genesis opens the Old Testament as the beginning of creation. And Matthew, as John explained, opens the New Testament as the genesis, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the new beginning that builds on the old history. And so Matthew, the Jewish gospel, takes us all the way back to see the family in all of its tension, in all of its conflict, in all of its awkward darkness, so that we will see how great is the preservation that God has accomplished and continues to accomplish for our good. There are, in the Old Testament, a number of great promises that God has made, and two of those promises of God are reflected in this three-staged listing of names. Abraham and David are the key figures to those. You heard one of those promises moments ago from Genesis 12. God to Abram promised to bless the nations of the world through Abram and his family. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David the king to maintain, to preserve one of David's heirs on his throne to establish his kingdom to last forever and forever and forever into eternity. Those are the two promises that are portrayed here in this three-stage set of names. And the Bible is the historical account of God's powerful and patient preservation of those promises, promises that are fulfilled in the coming the advent of Jesus. It's a gospel that's preserved despite the time and the circumstances that surround it. So you have to wonder, you know, you read a list like this and it's not the only one in the Bible. Maybe you know there are a number of them in the Old Testament that are longer than this. Why why these ridiculous genealogies? I mean, why does God give us these lists of names We can hardly even pronounce them, and we don't know who most of these people really even are. Why? Why the boring and irrelevant listing of names? Because it's not boring, and it's not irrelevant when you understand what God is explaining and portraying and teaching about His gospel ways by giving us His family. God preserves His gospel. God preserves His promises despite the time and the circumstances that surround it, despite even immorality. Now, I have to tell you that I kind of hesitate to even use that word in a sermon outline or in a sermon at all, not because it's a bad or illegitimate word, but because it's a very pesky word 
for Christians and for non-Christians alike, immorality, or its brother word in the dictionary, morality. They're both very pesky words for us because our legalistic selves like to equate the gospel with morality. That's what we like to do. It's just sort of our, our fallen nature to assume that our morality is the same as the gospel that we hear from the Bible, but it's simply not. Jesus didn't equate those two things. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew would give to us just a few chapters later, Jesus, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, you can read there, you've read it before perhaps, Jesus explains two ways to live in the Sermon on the Mount. He says things like this, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, even if you lash out in anger at your brother or sister, then you're guilty for judgment. You hear the two ways? There are two ways. In other words, he's saying moral people don't murder. But gospel people repent even of their anger. Moral people don't steal stuff. But gospel people repent even of their jealousy and their covetousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not contrasting the non-religious people with the religious people. That's not what he's doing. Those are, the, those are not the two ways that he's contrasting. He is rather contrasting the religious people with the gospel people. He's contrasting the moral people with the repentant people. You see, there are actually three ways and not two ways to live. There are three ways. There is the non-religious, the, the wholehearted skeptic who doesn't believe in God or just believes God's out there somewhere but isn't inclined to any particular religious expression, the non-religious. And there are many, many of those out there. There might be some in here. Maybe you are that. There is the non-religious way. And then there's the religious way. And then there's the gospel way. If you find yourself maybe in the the non-religious camp, you have to understand what Christians are not very good at. We're not very good at distinguishing between morality and gospel. And when you hear us invite you into Christianity, maybe you assume that we're talking about being moral, but God is not concerned to preserve your morality. He's concerned to preserve his promise, which is to redeem his people even despite their immorality. Look at that first section there, beginning with Abram. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, pause. There's a huge story right there, isn't there? If you know some of your Old Testament, you know that Abraham, before he was the father of Isaac, he was the husband of Sarah and Shortly after receiving the promise from God and being called to leave his family, his father and mother, his people, and go with his family to the land that God would show him, shortly after he received these instructions and left, a famine overtook the land and Abram and Sarah went to Egypt to escape the famine. Maybe that sounds like a bit of foreshadowing, which would come later in the Old Testament. They go to Egypt in order to escape the famine, and there in Egypt... Abram pawned off his beautiful wife, Sarah, 
to Pharaoh the king in order to save his own hide. And then sometime later, he would father a child with a servant girl, assuming that God's promise was not going to come true. And then he would pawn off his wife yet again to a more powerful king in order to save his own hide. Abram, the hero of the Old Testament, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's a really good thing for Abraham because he had no righteousness to offer. Then you go on. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. There's some story there, isn't there? Jacob was the deceiver, the deceptive one, and he had his 12 sons, and 11 of them sold their own brother into slavery because of their jealousy of him. No righteousness to offer there. And then you continue on through verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, and something should begin to catch your eye as you read these names. Because there are some names that really don't belong here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then the carefully not named wife of Uriah. Four women who make their way into this genealogy, which in ancient days traditionally was made up only of the names of the fathers, only of the names of the men. And so Matthew, the Jewish gospel, includes very carefully the names of these four women because God has something to say through them. Some things that we could think of in regard to them is that three of these women were known for having been involved in sexual sin. One of them because of her own deceptive self-protection and seeking for revenge. Another one in order to make profit, and another one involved in sexual sin, probably because she was pressured by a powerful king to do it. The fourth one, Ruth, is known best for being a foreigner, a Moabitess, which Matthew, the Jewish Gospel would never include if there were not some good reason for it. And you could pin all kinds of disqualifications and lack of credit and immorality on these women. And I suppose they would have reason to own it. But I'm not sure that's really the reason why Matthew's included it here. These women were, like so many women in ancient days and even in modern days, marginalized, set aside and used by the very men whom God might have called to care for them and to help them. And you know it just by what's said in verse 6 about David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Okay, look, this woman had a really famous name. I promise you, Matthew didn't call her this because he couldn't remember her name. Oh, what was David's wife's name? What was? I promise you, Matthew knew her name was Bathsheba. But why would he call her the wife of Uriah? Because he wants us to remember she was not David's. And yet he, this king, went and stole her and used her and marginalized her as the leader of God's people Matthew means, I think, no disrespect to her. But to help us to see that even the great ones of God's family had their immoral issues. It should be no surprise for us to read these things emphasized in Matthew's gospel account. 
Why? A little bit of subtlety here. Do you remember what Matthew was? A tax collector. Matthew, of all people, would surely include these sorts of things. He was a tax collector. The, the tax collectors in the first century were despised by the rest of the Jews because they were basically traitors. They had, had given themselves to the Roman Empire in order to gain wealth at the expense of their Jewish brothers and sisters, and they would charge exorbitant rates on top of the taxes that the Roman Empire would collect through them. Matthew was a tax collector. And so, when he was called by Jesus, you can read it in Matthew 9, the thing happened that always happened when Jesus came across a tax collector. He went and sat down with them and the corresponding sinners that would gather around them and had a meal. And the moral ones would question it. And they did. And Jesus answered, you know, he said to them, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And so the big truth here is this. There's more grace in God's promise than there is immorality in you. There's more grace in His promise than there could ever be immorality in you. One author writing about grace said it this way. He said, what makes grace amazing is that God, through Jesus, shows favor and steadfast love to sinners who have willingly drunk the poison, who have loved their bondage, and who wanted no part of the light And yet, God in Christ reaches down and rescues us at great cost to Himself. We kind of assume so easily that grace is God doing good for people who want some good done for them. That's not what it is. Grace is God coming and doing good for those who have willingly drunk the poison who have loved their own bondage, not recognizing the death that awaited them, and God has come at great cost to Himself to preserve their lives. Therefore, the great preservation, God has preserved a family line throughout the ages, demonstrating our need for grace in order to bring that grace to bear through one man, Jesus Grace doesn't excuse immorality. You have to to recognize that and realize, I can't let that not go go unsaid. Grace doesn't excuse immorality. Paul is very clear. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. People, remember what you've received. But what does grace do? What does it do for us? It doesn't give us excuse to continue in immorality. What does grace do? It frees you to quit chasing morality. That's what grace does. Some of these people in this list were pretty faithful people. They were pretty good as far as relative contrast and comparison goes with some of their brothers and sisters. Some of these people were pretty faithful people, but none of them were perfect. All of them were full of flaws. But the family line continues on, and it adds to the immorality unpredictability. In verse 6, the genealogy of Jesus becomes a lineage of kings, doesn't it? That, that's what the new phase is in the second set of names. And as you read through this list of kings, there are only two predictable things, I think, that you find here. One of them is that all of these men are 
kings. Let me give you the rundown here. Okay, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, who follows Solomon, son of Solomon, was in his own foolishness and insecurity of his own fear, caused a revolt among the people of Israel, and the kingdom split in half. And the writers of Kings and Chronicles explain to us kind of the fruit of Rehoboam's heart. He took 18 wives and 60 concubines. I guess he had learned from his father Solomon how to be a husband. And he didn't learn very well, did he? And the chronicler tells us that he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. No surprise. But then like father, like son, Abijah, his son, took 14 wives. And on we go down a good path, right? I'm just kidding. But then Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And the chronicler even tells us that Asa, the son of Abijah, with 14 wives, Asa, his heart was wholly true all his days. How did that come to be? And then there's Jehoshaphat who sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, even while he sought alliances with the evil kings of Israel, which wasn't wise. And then Joram, get this, Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, had six brothers. But Joram was given the throne to be king, and so Joram, out of fear that one of his brothers might threaten his throne, had all six of his brothers killed. And we read that Joram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made. Joram was no king, was he? He wore a crown, but he killed his brothers and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house. He preserved it. And then comes Uzziah. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, at least until he grew strong and proud in his own eyes and met his destruction before God. And then Jotham, who ordered his ways before the Lord his God, who was followed by Ahaz, who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, living in faithless idolatry and provoking God by his actions, was followed by Hezekiah, who did what was right, repairing the temple and repenting of his father's sins. But then comes Manasseh who led Judah to do more evil than all the nations before them. And then Amos, or Ammon as some call him, continued in that same evil until his son Josiah returned the people to God. Josiah is a great Bible name for a faithful one who loves the Lord. But then Jehoiakim and his brothers were no strength for Israel, for Judah. And for about 500 years, only two things were predictable for the people of God. One was, all these men were called kings. The other one is, God was faithful to preserve his promise. For 14 generations, and then 14 generations, and then 14 generations, we're told here. Now, you just have to go back into the Old Testament to read a little bit to realize that Matthew is perfecting things. He's editing things a little bit. There weren't just 14 generations. There were more than that. Some of the kings get skipped. Some people just get left out of the genealogy here. But Matthew perfects it into three sets of 14 generations. 
He has a purpose in that. He's not being deceptive. You just have to go and read the Bible to see it's there. There's more than 14. What's Matthew after? It's that from our perspective, things are completely unpredictable. But in God's great preservation, everything is perfectly accounted for. You know, every Christian, and you know this, every Christian begins to realize that while life in Christ may be secure, and and we believe that in our heads, if not in our hearts, life in Christ is secure, but it's not predictable. One generation doesn't know what the next generation will bring. And young Christians, you have to understand Your parents worry about that a bit, okay? One generation doesn't know what the next generation will bring, but the grace of the gospel is always perfectly accounted for. Generation to generation, Thomas Fuller was an English pastor from the 1600s who, reading through this list of names in Matthew 1, recognized a a very simple lesson from it. And this is what he wrote. He said, From this I see, Lord, that my father's piety cannot be handed on. And that's bad news for me. But I also see that actual impiety is not always hereditary. And that's really good news for my son. It's a brilliant but simple lesson to recognize that the generations, oh, they're unpredictable. You never know what's going to come. A good king leads to a bad king, leads to a bad king, leads to a good king, and on it goes. You just don't know what's going to come, but the grace of God overcomes even the unpredictable generations of men. God preserves His promise. Despite our immorality and despite our unpredictability, He even does it, though, despite obscurity. Look, verse 12 and following, And after the deportation to Babylon... Now, notice the names that follow after this. You young Christians, if you, if you did what I asked, if you circled some of the names that you know throughout this list, I would guess that you might have circled some of these. You probably circled Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. I, I hope that you did. I hope that you know those names. And if you, in that first section, are a pretty good Bible student or have heard some of these stories, maybe you circled Boaz and Rahab and Ruth and Jesse, maybe. If you didn't, don't feel bad. But maybe you did. And you surely circled David's name. You you know David and Solomon in the next section, Solomon. And and maybe you know some of these names. Uzziah, he's a pretty famous king. And Ahaz and Manasseh are famous for being really, really evil. And Josiah is somewhat famous for being a really good king. Maybe you circled some of those names. But when it comes to the third section... I would love to know what names you circled. If you're a really good Bible student, you might have circled Zerubbabel. He gets mentioned. He gets some press in the Old Testament for helping to rebuild the temple when they return from Babylon. Maybe you circled Zerubbabel's name. But up until Joseph, I'm not sure who you would circle. And if you did circle him, I don't know if I believe you. Because you'd have to be an Old Testament professor to know most of these names, I think. I mean, this genealogy began with the great man of wealth and faith, Abraham. And it rose on up to the great king of Israel, David. But then it begins to descend 
down to the deportation to Babylon. And you might think it could go no lower than that. Oh, but it does. It goes right on down through the hall of the unknowns to a humble carpenter with a mysteriously pregnant wife, Mary. And where did the first advent unfold? How did this thing come to be? In a small town. You know the name of it? Bethlehem. Not many people knew the name of it, even in the day. In a small inn where there was no room for them, and so they had to sleep in the small stable outside. Some think it was even a cave. And this Jesus was born and placed in a feeding trough in the stable. The lineage of kings had come to complete and utter obscurity. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at King Herod, or I'll put that in quotes, King Herod of Israel, of Judah and Samaria at the time of the birth of Jesus. He was an infamous king for some of the nasty things that he did, including killing all the boys in Bethlehem aged two and under in order to prevent the rumor of a new king of the Jews being born there. But there's some confusion by scholars and people who study such things because though the Bible tells us Herod killed all the boys in Bethlehem aged two and under, it's not included in the earliest histories of the day. And some wonder why that is, but the point is Bethlehem was really small. It was a tiny town in the middle of nowhere and there only might have been 20 or maybe 30 boys at most aged two and under in that town. If Herod, who had done much, much, much worse in his day, went and killed 20 or 30 two-year-olds in a tiny nowhere town, it wouldn't even rate for attention. This is how far this line of kings had fallen. This family that God had preserved had come to virtually nothing. But the promise that he preserved through them had come to complete and perfect fruition. Because Matthew tells us, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. God's great preservation of this family is God's great preservation of his promises, which is God's great preservation of his gospel, which is God's great expression of his grace. Not the grace of a dancer's movements and not the supposed grace of an Olympic athlete who's in the zone, but the grace of of the gospel, which is God accomplishing for you what you could never accomplish for yourself. God achieving for the one who has willingly drunk the poison, loving their own bondage in order to gain for them what they could never gain for themselves. God's great preservation of this promise is his expression of grace, even your own obscurity notwithstanding even as small and irrelevant as you might seem on any given rainy, cold, wintry Sunday morning, even despite that, God has preserved his promise. We read something of it in Revelation. Do you remember in Revelation 11, we read that passage about the the blowing of the seventh trumpet. 
And when the seventh trumpet blows, giving a picture of things coming to fruition, God fulfilling his promises, do you remember what happens there? The elders surrounding the throne turn and fall down and worship God. And and this is what they say. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign The time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. Why go to the trouble to preserve the gospel for all the ages? I mean, you have to wonder, why go to the trouble of generation after generation after generation even as many as Matthew gives here, why, why go to the trouble of all that? Why not just let Messiah be born to Adam and Eve after Cain and Abel's debacle? Why not just let Messiah be born then and, and fix it all right away? I, why, why not? Why the trouble of Why should we have this list of names in our New Testament? Who knows the mind of God? I don't really know. Who, who knows the mind of God? But you have to recognize that a careful look at this shows a number of things. It shows our need for grace. In the midst of our immorality and our morality. It shows our need for grace in the midst of our unpredictability and even our obscurity. A careful look at this list of names shows the great, great patience of God as He preserves His promises and it shows that he has indeed preserved those promises despite the time and despite the circumstances that surround it today's the first sunday of advent it's the first sunday that the church around the world gathers its heart together to anticipate the coming of jesus so join with your father's Join with your mothers in this faith who saw his coming and anticipate his coming again because he will. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for your coming that you have promised to us to restore, to redeem, to recover your people by your grace. And we give you thanks that you've called us together as a church to celebrate that. Oh Lord, would you grant that we might believe, that that we might grow in faith to recognize your great work through the ages. And that we might marvel, Lord, at the ways that you call us to follow you, even through a ridiculously long list of names that makes no sense to us apart from the bigger story of your redemption. Lord, grant to us faith to believe that we might worship your name for Jesus' sake. Amen.